Welcome back, everyone, to the Clinical Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Panarella. We're on Episode 7. Today, I'm going to be talking about the pulse. And the pulse, this issue came up when I was a was an, was an instructor, was a teacher of veterinary nursing students. And one of the tasks they had to complete was measuring the pulse. And um, that's an easy thing to say and an easy thing to teach. But it's another thing to say, what is the pulse? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And I had to dig a little deeper myself to answer that question. I knew it was related to heart rate, but I did some research. And what I'm going to discuss with you today is the outcome of that research. And I never, I don't recall being taught this in veterinary school. So it did open my eyes to some of my knowledge that was a little bit more superficial and other topics. Or if I learned that I had completely forgotten what it was. So be that as it may, here's the information that I found and what I um, handed to students. It's been slightly updated since that time, but the facts are still the same. Nothing has changed in that regard. So the pulse, what is it really? Well, the pulse really is a proxy. It's a substitute that we use for measuring the heart rate, and we also use, use it to confirm blood flow. When the heart is functioning, functioning normally, meaning, for example, that the uh, electrical component of the heart is working fine, of the cells is fine, mechanically the heart is working fine, anatomically the heart is fine, then the heart beats per minute, which is normally what the reference standard is, is a, a one-minute count, and the pulse count per minute are the same. That is in a totally, air quotes, normal animal, okay? Now, how does the how does the pulse arrive? What is really causing it? How is it being made, manufactured, if you will? Well, physiologically, the pulse is a pressure wave that occurs within the arteries and that is transmitted throughout the entire arterial blood vessel system. Okay, Pulses should not be out into the capillaries where the capillaries' final pathway for blood when it's being distributed throughout the body from the arterial system. And the capillaries are about one red blood cell wide, and that allows the red blood cells to do their thing, meaning distribute oxygen, take up carbon dioxide to the cells of the body. And then after the blood is pumped through the arterial system, it goes to the capillary bed, which is again throughout the entire body, taken up by the veins and brought back to the heart. Since the cardiovascular system, which is what the system we are really talking about is, is a closed system, any new blood that enters that system, which the new blood is the blood that's in the um, chamber of the left ventricle, is being squeezed or pushed into the aorta, which is the uh, large connection blood vessel fed from directly from the left ventricle, this new blood in the aorta causes a rise in the pressure within this blood vessel or tube. So think about the system as a pump, which is the heart, and then a bunch of piping throughout the body. Okay, It's basically no different than the plumbing system in your house. You have some reservoir tank somewhere in your house, and you have a plumbing system, and it's a closed system. Okay, Or maybe a better analogy would be the heating system. Uh, you know, if you go back to the old days with steam pipes, uh, you had a, a boiler which would send steam to a radiator, and as it cooled, it turned into water, and then that was connected 
the steam had to be connected to the radiator by a pipe. And then the condensed water would return back to the boiler. That's a closed system. If everything is working fine, you're not gaining really and you're not losing. And this is all based on physics, actually, which physics is a little scary when you think about it, but it really uh, defines how all of these systems actually work. So this increased pressure causes a wave to occur in the uh, blood vessel itself, in the aorta, because now the aorta, if it has to make up a number 10 mils of blood right at the um, exit from the left ventricle, and now you're going to put another 10 mils into it, that 10 mils has to go somewhere. So what happens is the aorta stretches or swells a little bit. And this is the distensibility of the aorta, and which is, we require this. It's biology. It is um, how the aorta then is able to hold that additional amount of uh, new air quotes blood. So this distensibility is very important, okay? Because this distensibility is what is the actual wave that is transmitted then throughout the entire vascular system. So this distensibility and the ability of the blood vessels to hold blood is called vascular compliance, which is extremely important because the blood vessels really are a reservoir for blood. So as this wave then is transmitted through the arterial system, each segment behind the wave returns to its normal size. So that's the rebound, right? It stretches a little bit and then it comes back to the normal shape size. And then the peak pressure that is created here right after blood is ejected, pushed out from the left ventricle, is called the systolic blood pressure. And then what pressure remains in the system after this peak pressure is called diastolic pressure. So the systolic pressure, and this is true in human beings and in animals, the systolic pressure is only a fraction of, let's just take a, a one-second interval for argument's sake, the systolic pressure is maintained mm, about a third to maybe 40% of that one second. And then the remaining pressure is, the, is excuse me, the diastolic pressure, which is that, you know, is 67 to 60% of the pressure. Okay. And the systolic pressure, let's just take the average of using a human being for a moment, 120 over 80. Okay. The 120 is the systolic, the 80 is the diastolic. So, quick little segue, the mean blood pressure actually is a combination of, it's a, it's a smaller multiplier of the systolic pressure, right? Because I said it's only about 30 to 40% of the entire pressure, and the, and the, excuse me, the diastolic is 67 to uh, 60%, so two-thirds of the blood pressure is made up of the mean blood pressure is made up of the diastolic. So mean blood pressure is slightly different than the systolic or the diastolic, but it's it's trending a little bit more towards the diastolic because the diastolic is two-thirds of the actual total pressure. So the pulse pressure, what is called the pulse pressure, is a difference between the systolic and the diastolic. We worry about it a little bit in veterinary medicine. I don't think quite as much as um, is done in human medicine. So when you're actually palpating a pulse, which I'll get into specifically locations and how to do that shortly, what you're actually feeling is that systolic pressure wave, basically that high pressure wave being transmitted down through all the arteries throughout the body. Now, there should be no pressure in, um, you, you should not be able to feel the pulse pressure in um, 
doesn't exist in the capillaries. We probably couldn't feel it anyway. And secondarily, it should not occur in the uh, venous system, which is the return, the blood vessels that return blood to the heart. So just to just just to um, recap, the pulse, the actual physical thing we're feeling is the pressure wave that occurs in the walls of the arteries. So when you put your fingers on it, uh, on an artery to get the pulse, you're feeling that pressure wave as it moves by. So it's, it starts out at the aorta and then just goes and transmitted down to all the arterial system. So where can you feel the pulse? Well, in conscious dogs or cats that are uh, not fractious, they're easily uh, restrained. Generally speaking, in an animal that's standing up, it can be recumbent or laying down on its side, again, depending on the uh, nature of the uh, of the animal's um, behavior, if it's cooperative or not. We're going to feel uh, the pulse high up on the inside of the thigh, basically a little bit closer to the front, but mostly between the front and the back of the thigh, of the inner thigh, up high against the body wall. And that's the femoral artery we would be feeling. It's on what we would call the medial side or the inside. Generally speaking, it is best felt with two to three fingertips resting lightly against the artery. Now, here's a note. You do not want to use your thumb. It would be very difficult to use your thumb in an animal in this location. In human beings, we have a pulse in our thumb, and you can inadvertently, if you use your thumb, you can inadvertently be checking or detecting your own pulse versus what you're actually supposed to be feeling. So if you use your fingertips, that's going to be the the uh, the standard. And this is sort of a Goldilocks scenario, meaning that you have a couple of fingers here. You are going to have to depress or push down against the artery somewhat. There's the right amount of pressure, there's too much pressure, and there's too little pressure. To understand how much pressure you have to practice, 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 and you can use yourself as the simplest means to do that. And you can tell right away when you're pressing if the pressure is too light or if it's too light, you're not really going to be able to detect well the pulse. If you press too hard, you're going to actually cut off the blood flow, and then, then that will be a cause for concern. So, but you should practice all those things. You should press a little too hard and then release it slightly, and you'll feel the pulse again. And then you should back off even more, and you'll feel how faint it is. And then go through that scenario multiple times. So you can use yourself as a gauge. So when you're working on an animal, you'll be able to have a better appreciation for what is a normal feeling pulse. So I just talked about um, dogs and cats. Uh, I just gave you, uh, in people, I talked about using yourself per se as the guinea pig. A very simple place to check your pulse is at the radial artery, which is an artery in your arm that goes down to your hand. And that is felt up high in your wrist, okay? And again, you're going to use two or three fingers, place it inside that little notch there, high up toward your thumb, but at your wrist, and you will feel this thumping under your fingers. And that's the radial artery, and that's the pulse, okay? Now, the pulses should be, I don't know if I talked about this before, but the pulses should occur a fraction of a second after a heartbeat, right? I said it's a proxy for the heartbeat. We are using that. That meaning is that it's a proxy for the heart heart rate, heartbeat uh, count per minute. So it should occur briefly after every normal heartbeat, okay? 
I'll get into what happens if that doesn't occur. Okay. So in us, it's the radial artery. In dogs, it's the femoral artery. And in horses, just to make an aside, I said this podcast would mostly be about dogs and cats, but occasionally when there's great references, um, horses horses will uh, will fit the bill. An easy location in horses, two real simple locations. One is the facial artery, which you can feel crossing under the jaw, somewhere about halfway to two-thirds back from the front of the mouth to the curve at the back of the jaw. And it's very easy. It's a very large blood vessel. You can just slide a couple of fingers up under there and you can get a, you, you'll be able to feel it right away. Or you could slightly put your fingers up under the inside of the jaw. Another very common place in horses to check the pulse is at the digital artery, which runs down the side towards the back of the pastern. And that's generally felt, again, it's, it's palpable, meaning you can feel it close enough to the surface where your fingers can provide a little bit of downward pressure and then you can feel the artery bounding, bouncing back against your fingers. Um, it's frequently done to check for problems in the in the hoof, basically, because the pastern is uh, just above the hoof. And if horses have a problem in the hoof with diseases such as laminitis, you're going to probably have a bounding pulse. So I've talked to you about what the pulse is so far. I've talked to you about locations, and I've talked to you about how the pulse is created. Well, once your fingers are on the artery that you've selected, ideally what you're going to need is some sort of stopwatch or clock in which to be able to look and in your head count seconds, okay? I actually prefer a digital watch with a hand, with hands. Um, I don't really like for some reason, maybe just because I'm older school, a digital watch for doing this, but it doesn't really matter. You just have to pick the mechanism because you're, the device that you're going to use to count off seconds. So teaching students, I would generally use a 15-second rule because what you would do is you would you, you, you can count the uh, pulses under your fingers for 15 seconds, and then the simple math, since we said is pulse per minute, is multiply by four, okay? If you're more experienced, you may only listen for five or 10 seconds because at five seconds, you can multiply by 12. At 10 seconds, you multiply by six, and whatever that number is is the number. Now, depending on if you're, ideally, you're counting on the split second that um, whatever time interval you're using. So there can be a slight variation, I'd say, of, you know, five, maybe 10% off up or down on the pulse, but it should be within that five, 10% ballpark of what your heart rate actually is. And the more experience you gain, the easier it's going to be to locate the pulse, the easier it's going to be able to feel the pulse, and the quicker you'll be able to, to get the pulse. So as a veterinarian, when I'm doing a physical exam on an animal, if, I'm, if the animal is cooperative enough, if I can do it for a physical exam, I have my stethoscope out and my stethoscope, I will use one hand to hold the stethoscope over the heart and I will place my fingers up, generally again, speaking on the femoral artery, up high on the inside of the thigh, and I will check to make sure that they actually are the same. Now, I said at the very beginning of the podcast that the pulse is a proxy, and if everything is running normally, that there's a normal amount of blood, the blood vessels are okay, the heart is okay, anatomically, mechanically, electrically, that you're going to get a heartbeat, you're going to get the blood ejected, you're going to get the pulse wave, and then 
the blood is going to be pushed down throughout the body. But there are cases where that doesn't always happen. Or we can talk about also several, um, not several, but a couple of different qualities of the pulse. So there are four types of pulses basically that you can use to describe a pulse. What I would call normal slash a strong pulse. Again, normal is relative. You have to practice this to really understand what I'm talking about. There's a hyperkinetic pulse. There's a hypokinetic pulse or an absent pulse. So let's dive a little deeper into those. A hyperkinetic pulse, or what you could think of or may have read, is what's called a bounding pulse. It's going to be stronger than the average normal pulse that you would be feeling, okay? And that means that there's an increase in systolic pressure or a lower diastolic pressure. Because again, the pulse is that heat systolic pressure being pushed throughout the arterial blood vessels. And if anybody here exercises, as I do, I check my pulse frequently when I'm exercising. Conditions such as exercise will increase your pulse because your body's calling for oxygen. You need to uh, you know, compensate. Your body will compensate. And one way it compensates is by increasing your heart rate to get more blood, more oxygen pushed through to the muscles, and actually also to um, clear out the carbon dioxide. Your heart rate's going to go up. So what you're going to get is more frequent pulses, and you might be ejecting some more blood. So you're going to get a slightly increased amount of blood going in. You're going to get a slightly increased systolic pressure or peak pressure, and therefore you're going to get a stronger pulse. Diseases, including such things as infections, where an animal may be septic with a bacterial infection, it's going to cause a lot of problems. One of those problems, again, increased heart rate, stronger pulse. Anatomic problems. Um, there's an anatomic problem called a PDA or patent ductus arteriosus, which the ductus arteriosus is a normal anatomic feature in fetuses. Fetuses are not breathing, per se, inside the mother. Their lungs are, are not functioning. They're developing. They'll be encased in fluid, but they will not be expanding and contracting. The mother is providing blood and oxygen through the umbilical cords, and the mom is taking away that blood back through the umbilical cord back to her body. So she's providing oxygen and taking away some waste products. Some waste products are maintained in the fetus. So that ductus arteriosus is a connection between the aorta and the pulmonary artery, which allows the blood basically to bypass the lungs to bring in oxygen and discharge carbon dioxide. But in the case of an animal, ductus arteriosus should close. And if I recollect correctly, exposure to oxygen at the concentrations that we have out in our atmosphere will cause that ductus arteriosus to close, but sometimes it doesn't. And then what happens is you get a, generally speaking, a young animal, although obviously, or maybe not obviously, but animals can survive this and grow up with it. So the animal might not be a puppy when it's discovered, but uh, a ductus arteriosus that remains open is called patent. Patent just means open. And so now what happens is some of that animal's blood, depending on how much that blood vessel is open, some of the animal's blood will not be going to the lungs. So a portion will be bypassing the lungs. So a greater portion of blood bypassing the lungs, the animal actually might be bluer than it should be. So if you look at the gums, and the gums are supposed to be pink, maybe they're not quite pink enough. Maybe there's actually a slight blue hue to the blood. If there's very little blood and it's only a very small EDA, as we call it. You may not even be able to look at the animal. There may be no exercise intolerance. Um, a PDA, if it's really bad, the animal might 
um, not be able to exercise completely like it would be if it if it didn't have the PDA. And PDAs have a classic sound. It's called a machinery murmur. There's nothing else like it that I've ever heard. If you put your stethoscope over the animal's heart, you will just hear this. It's not grinding noise, but it's a very mechanical noise. And that's that blood bypassing the lungs. And it's a classic sound. Okay, so those are some causes of a hyperkinetic or bounding pulse, which per se would be stronger than what you would feel in an animal that's not exercising or without an infection or let's say a PDA. A hypokinetic pulse, so we'll go on to the other type of pulse, or what you could think of in your head as a weak pulse results from a reduced systolic pressure. So how does this occur? It can can occur from heart failure where the heart is, maybe the heart muscle is too thick or the heart muscle is too thin. If the heart is not functioning properly, you're not going to get the proper amount of blood ejected. Either the heart muscle is too thick, meaning that the chamber can't hold as much blood as normal. Heart is, it's too flabby. The heart muscle is too flabby. And then because it's flabby, it's not ejecting as much blood as normal. So you're not going to get as, as much blood inside that closed system, I said. So you're going to eject. The heart's going to eject slightly less blood into the aorta. Therefore, that systolic pressure won't be as high. Blood loss, very simple and straightforward. If if you're supposed to hold a thousand mils in your blood of blood in the cardiovascular system, and now you've only got 500, you're going to have an issue. The heart, you're going to lose. If you lose blood, your heart rate will probably go up, and your blood vessels will contract somewhat. Because the body's trying to maintain that pressure, that blood pressure is actually one of the most critical components of how we survive. Because things like your brain and your kidneys need a certain amount of blood, and that's going, they need to see a certain amount of blood, and that's going to be maintained by the pressure. So if the pressure gets too low, you're going to have problems, and the body's going to try to maintain blood flow at almost any cost to the uh, internal organs, especially the important ones like the brain and the kidneys. And also to the heart itself. Uh, so that was uh, blood loss, or what we could call hypovolemia, a smaller or reduced blood volume, and shock. So I had mentioned previously about a hyperkinetic uh, pulse, a bounding pulse being caused by an infection. So let's just play that scenario out for a minute. Take an animal. Let's just take it. Let's take a dog. It's got a normal pressure of 120 over 80. Gets an infection. Somehow that infection gets into the bloodstream. Okay. Well, let's take up let's take up uh, a seriously ill puppy with parvovirus that I covered in a previous episode, episode six. So at the very beginning of the infection, the parvo is damaging that dog's body. It's damaging its GI tract, and now in the GI tract, there's billions of bacteria, many different types and strains of bacteria. And now, when you denude, you kill the cells lining the gut you're going to allow these bacteria into the bloodstream because that you know, the cells that are dying are a protective barrier on top of the white blood cells, which now the white blood cells, because of the virus, are, are maybe not as numerous. And those blood cells are maybe been engaged more by the virus. They're not doing their job. So the guardians are not as actively functioning as they should be. So some bacteria translocates from the lining of the gut, it gets into the bloodstream. And then the first place they're going to go was lymph nodes, but secondarily, they're going right to the liver. So now this puppy is in the stages of having parvovirus, and it's also got a uh, bacterial septicemia or sepsis in its bloodstream. 
other factors in the animal's body. This is going to trigger a cascade of factors for the animal's body to fight this infection. So in the beginning, you're going to get most likely elevated heart rate, an attempt if the puppy's not supremely dehydrated or severely dehydrated, um, you're going to get probably an increased blood pressure and you're probably going to get a fever, right? That's the animal's body trying to compensate for this infection. But let's take a puppy that is not being actively treated. It's not in a hospital. It still could be in a hospital, but for the, for our sake of argument, we're just going to be talking about shock. At some point, the animal's body is going to become very weak. Now, if things, if animals not on IV fluids and other drugs, medications to try to fight the infection, try to maintain blood pressure, what eventually is going to happen is the animal's body is going to weaken. It's not going to be able to, it's going to, the bacteria are going to start to cause even greater, greater problems. Now the virus has suppressed the immune system even more. So what you're going to get is a continuum from the shock. You're going to start out with shock where the animal is, is increased heart rate, increased systolic blood pressure. And if there's no intervention, you're going to, the animal's body is going to slip down into, into shock basically. And let's just take this case of septic shock. And now the heart rate is starting to slow and the blood pressure is starting to drop. What you would feel if you were feeling, let's say, the femoral pulse is a weakened pulse. So you can take an animal that has shock, septic shock. It can start out as just an infection where the body's fighting it, higher heart rate, higher systolic pressure. You're going to get a bounding pulse. But in that same patient, depending on how quickly things are progressing, you can go from a, a bounding pulse to a weak pulse. And then the final pulse quality is no pulse quality. That's called a pulse deficit, where there's an absence of the pulse corresponding to the heartbeat. Again, going back to the beginning, I said that the pulse is a proxy for the heart rate. And we need to see, we should be seeing a pulse, a split second, a fraction of a second after a heartbeat. And animals, it's going to be something wrong with the heart. And commonly, it's an electrical problem in the heart. And we have two very common problems in, in it can happen in dogs and cats, a disease called atrial fibrillation and premature ventricular contraction. Now, they're two separate problems. Atrial fibrillation, the atria are the upper chambers of the heart. They get blood. The right atrium receives blood from the venous system, from the body. The left atrium receives blood returning back from the heart. And if the electrical system. There's a hardwired electrical system inside the heart, and there's particular cells that will trigger that electrical system and send an electrical charge out for the heart to fire. Because the heart has to fire rhythmically, and if there's any interruption or problems with the cells or even the conduction pathway, then you're going to get the atria firing when they shouldn't. And then that means that they won't get as much blood. They won't send out as much blood because the atria is sending blood to the lower chambers or the ventricles. So if the atria is squeezing rhythmically and then you take this rhythmic squeezing and you sort of give it half squeezes or quarter squeezes or what have you, when the atria is squeezing, maybe that's when blood should be coming in. And now you have a smaller volume of blood coming in. And conversely, if it's squeezing all the time, and maybe it's only a partial squeeze, you're only going to get a little bit of blood out into the lower chambers. And then what that's going to mean is that a little less blood or a lot less blood is going to be ejected, pushed into the aorta, which means you're going to get a probably a weak or no pulse is going to be felt, yet you're going to detect the heartbeat. Again, if your stethoscope is on that patient while you're palpating. The other 
electrical issue is called a premature ventricular contraction, or some people call it a VPC, a ventricular premature contraction. They're both the same thing. I was I learned PVC. It's a little easier for me to think about and say than VPC, but what have you. Apples to apples, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, what have you. And that's basically the same thing. There's an electrical conduction problem, or there's cells that have gone bad in the ventricles, and they're sending the ventricles, the muscles, signals. Basically, it's within itself to fire. And if they fire, and let's say there's no blood in there when they should be filling with blood, then you're going to get no blood coming in, but you'll, you won't have a pulse. So the heart will be firing electrically, the ventricles will be triggered, and no blood comes out, no pulse. So that's a weaker absent pulse. And that's why it's important in the end, if we're using it as a proxy, it is a proxy. There can be problems with the pulse, meaning that if you make an assumption about the heart solely based off the pulse and you don't listen to the heart, you will get caught. So the best thing to do is if you're checking the pulse is to also sculpt the heart, put your stethoscope on there, verify that the heart sounds normal, that the heart is beating rhythmically, and that you are getting a pulse matched with every heartbeat. That concludes pulse. I hope I've given you a little bit deeper insight, a couple of practical tips about how to check check the pulse, where to check the pulse on different animals and yourself. Use yourself as a guinea pig. Get your stethoscope out. Listen to your own heart. If you happen to be a veterinarian or a veterinary nurse, you're in vet school, you're in um, nursing school, get your stethoscope out. Use yourself. You're Actually, we're one of the simplest guinea pigs to use, and I also use human beings as references because basically it's it's all the same. We, there are differences. There are anatomic differences in um, certain areas, but as a, an overall basis, it's very easy to use yourself as a guinea pig and to think about what's going on in us because most of that is what's going on in animals. And then practice, practice, practice. And that's the way you're going to know what normal is. And that's how we are all taught. We're all taught what's normal. If you learn normal, you'll know abnormal. You're never going to see every abnormality there is out there, but if you know what a normal pulse feels like, if you know what a normal heartbeat sounds like, you do that math, they're both the same, things are good, and you'll be able to pick up in a patient when things are awry. Either there's an electrical abnormality, there's a pulse deficit, you could get a bounding pulse in a horse with laminitis, you could get a weak pulse in a dog with uh, end stages of shock. Depending on your career, your um, places that you work, you might see all these these cases. You're going to see lots of normal animals, but you're also going to see abnormal. So I hope this has been helpful. This podcast will come out on Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you for, uh, per se, tuning in to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Panarella. I can be reached by email at askdrmatt at proton.me. That's doesn't matter, all caps or no caps, A-S-K-D-R-M-A-T-T at Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N, bot, M-E, as in me. Thank you, everybody, and I look forward to seeing you again.